0: and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV, you may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always... All our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. I thought I'd have to choose between an IT degree and certifications until I found WGU. There, I earned both through one program. WGU prepared me to earn certs from CompTIA and others at no extra cost. WGU IT bachelor's and master's degrees have no set class times. Rather, students progress at their pace, completing as many courses as they can each six-month term. I graduated faster, and you could too. Learn more at wgu.edu. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination Pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com
1: I-N. That's pro.stateaffairs.com
0: slash I-N. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Dave Hyde. Dave is a sports columnist for the South Florida Sun Sentinel newspaper, of Fort Lauderdale. He has won numerous journalism and sports writing awards. He is a graduate of Miami of Ohio, and he is on today to talk about his book with Jimmy Johnson. It's called Swagger. And I can't imagine a more appropriate name for a book about Jimmy Johnson. I'd like to know how long you all debated what to call it.
1: Well, that that it is as soon as that name was thrown out, And and I didn't think of it. I actually had a different title longer that played off the Pygmalion theory of Jimmy's and everything. And and, uh, the publisher, um, Brian Befiglio, the editor at the publishing house, threw it out there. And as soon as we heard it, we go, "Yep, that's that's the title. That's it's perfect. It sums up in one word um, everything about Jimmy. And so. uh, And and. You know, they say don't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge this one.
0: Well, yeah, because because it's got it's got got Jimmy Johnson's blue eyes, uh, three championship rings. And it says it's called Swagger, Super Bowls, Brass Balls and Footballs, a memoir by Jimmy Johnson and Dave Hyde. Was was the book a long time coming? Was it something that you had to convince him to do or was he willing to do it and just needed a co-author?
1: Yeah, it took about three seconds of conversation with Jimmy. <laughs> I was actually down at I was down in Island visiting the Hall of Fame. He went into the Hall of Fame and was interviewing him for a column. And we've known we've known each other obviously when he was coaching here, but then through the years of retirement, probably got to know each other better and more relaxed conversations. And um I was looking to do a book and and uh Threw it out there to him. I thought, you know, he, he, I, I was fascinated. He's had people, he still has people, NFL coaches, general manager, EA people, call him up and come down to the Keys and visit him and pick his brain on, you know, evaluating talent, building organizations. Um, you know, what are the most important things? Things to look for when you're evaluating talent, and so I was always fascinated that here he is, you know, two decades more than two decades out of football, and and still people are coming to him, and and um, so I, I proposed it at his house. Uh, hey, you ever think of doing a book? Because I'm fascinated not just about your career and and summing up some of the loose ends there, what happened at the Cowboys, um, and Yeah, you know, going into Fox and all that stuff, but how how you went about your business of building an organization and a winner, and and what these people are still coming down all these years later to talk to you about, and and uh, he he looked in the threw it out there and he said, okay, let's do it, and I was like, whoa, wait, why why don't you think about it for a little bit, okay? Uh, But I didn't know he he said his uh, good friend, a longtime lawyer. Nick Christian had been telling him he sh- he needs to do a book the same sort of the same idea and he, and Jimmy liked the idea of making it contemporary with uh, with people coming down and seeing him now and and really his thoughts apply now all his uh, you know way he organization and evaluates talent and and sees people. Um, it, it all applies. So it was a fun, it it really wasn't a hard sell at all, fortunately, because I didn't have a big spiel laid out.
0: You know, you anticipated one of my questions and that is, I don't know of any other, and I'm, I'm guessing you do because you hear the chatter, any other former coach of the NFL, whose place is such a pilgrimage for current coaches, pro and college, maybe Parcells. I don't know. Does Walsh or Gibbs or some of the other Super Bowl winning coaches, uh, um, Brian Billick, I, I just never hear the stories of. And maybe it's because I read your columns and read the South Florida papers because I'm a Miami Dolphins fan. Uh, that that happens with any other coaches. What am I wrong, or what does make what makes Jimmy so special?
1: Yeah, I think Parcells has a big tree of people, and and um, you know, a lot of coaches. There, there's a you know an inner circle of coaches. They go and pick each other's brain, but not like not like Jimmy. I think where people out of the blue call him. Uh, um, the San Antonio Spurs uh, general manager calls the the um guys from college football he's never met you know bert balema calls um <laughs> mm-hmm. and and um you know you know they all come to, they i think they they're coming to the keys but but the 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 central <laughs> part is is um you know he'll meet with them and and you know lay out who he was and how he went about his business and everybody's looking for an idea whether it's um, how to get a better draft in the NFL or how to manage players better. Um, and Jimmy was a master at that. Everybody talks of him going into the pro football hall of fame as a, as a coach, but he really went into me. He changed the the way front offices think, think in the, how to, how to draft people, how to make trades uh, before, you know, he, he, he made the, the draft value chart where he, he, he plotted, on a chart, point values for every draft pick through through 12 rounds at the time. And and that way, he could, someone calls and say, I'll, I'll give you the, you know, a third and a fifth round pick for your second round pick. Well, he would go to the chart and look up the point totals and, and uh, um, in favor of him, he'd make the trade. He also investigated what teams made good trades, what team made bad trades to look for trade partners. Um, so he he worked a lot of different ways and thought a different way. So I, as much as people talk about him going in the Pro Football Hall of Fame as a coach, what he did on the general manager side of, in the front office um, was probably more lasting as far as uh, the way it changed the game than what he did on the sideline.
0: OK, so you're obviously you can surreptitiously or somehow see all of my questions because you just answered the another question that I had written down <laughs> about how did Jimmy change the NFL? Let yeah, me, let me talk about the draft chart for a little bit. There was there's been some pushback on it. I Famously, it was the Indianapolis Colts general manager or president, Bill Polian, who took issue with the chart. And his argument was not all drafts are the same. There are drafts sure. where you have. Seven or eight top players, and everyone knows who's gonna go when and where, and yeah. others just don't have as much talent. Did Jimmy ever address that argument that his chart while while helpful isn't necessarily dispositive
1: yeah the 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 bigger issue to me and and uh it's that this is a generational thing is with the salary cap now mm. um you know Draft picks are in, in some ways more valuable because you have players under contract for so many years. And, but, but all, all I know is maybe Polian didn't use it, but, but teams are still using it. And, uh, you know, it, it, it gave, him, he made 55 trades in his five years with Dallas. And a lot of them were draft day trades. And to tell you the era, how different it was to put you back there, the Giants made one trade in those five years, and it was with Dallas. So
0: (laughs) I read that in the book. That's right.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was staggering some of the – so, you know, now we're – on draft day, of, you know, draft picks and everything. But back, you know, when Jimmy came into the NFL – it wasn't like that. There were some teams that made trades, but nobody made trades like, um, you know, like Dallas did in rebuilding that roster. And, um, you know, I'm I'm sure the draft value chart wasn't for everybody, but you look at the trades he made and why he made them. And it was a great value to him.
0: So let's, I want to talk about his, uh, his love of coaching and go back to his playing days a little bit but we can't uh, get past the discussion of coach johnson's trades without mentioning herschel walker that trade seemed to have been a watershed my brother who's been a minnesota vikings fan since super bowl four and uh, we put the razor blades away before every year uh he I yeah. remember him talking about what a great trade it was and you know he was happy to get the superstar. But when you look at it now and even close to the time, it's astonishing that the Cowboys and Johnson could have pulled that off Yeah, a professional league.
1: Yeah. First of all, I, I I'm wondering about your family. You're a dolphin fan, just suffering the last couple of decades, and your brother, a Viking fan, they've had their moments, but but uh Corey Indiana household <laughs> had to raise those two kids <laughs> um, th- 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 that that trade was interesting in that again you have to put yourself into that time um, cuz now you look at the trade and you say wait a second jimmy was given the option of mediocre players or at the end of the year you know first or second or third round draft picks Dump the players and and take the draft picks, and when from the point of view of today, you're like, well, forget the players. Look at those draft picks: three draft, three first round draft picks, three second round draft picks for Herschel Walker. You know that's a you know as Jimmy called it the great train robbery. But but at the time, people were conditioned to say and they looked at the players and well there's a mediocre player there's a mediocre player there's you know four or five mediocre players for Herschel Walker the and Jimmy got ripped for it na- nationally and um it was only with time um did everybody come to understand wait a second he didn't want the players he wanted these all of a sudden he had a a treasure chest of draft picks to rebuild a roster and you know he, he explained privately to, to Dallas writers at the time what he was doing but but um, it wasn't something people really understood until you know it was actually exec- the, the big game plan was executed
0: well and taking us back to that time was it Herschel Walker was a hell of a lot better running back than he was a senate candidate, so we should say that. <laughs> yeah. No offense, Mr. Walker. And it was a time where running backs were much more valued in the sense that that a yeah. lot of if you look at the Super Bowl winning Teams of the '70s and early to mid '80s, they were loaded with great running backs: Larry Zonka, Franco Harris, Tony Dorsett. The list goes on and on. So, so Herschel's status in the NFL at the time was way beyond what you would think of now. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, and it's also fair when you're looking. Think of what Jimmy stepped into. He stepped into the a team that had the worst record in football: three and thirteen. And they lost their first seven games in in Dallas and he's looking around he's jogging he's actually goes jogging every day with his staff and he's and he's they're they're kicking around what to do and they have one really blue chip Tristan with with Herschel, okay it can't get worse from a, from and and he says, what about trading Herschel Walker and and they chuckle because wait, we can't trade Herschel Walker, but you look when you think about it, from a building point of view, um, here they are zero and seven. Here they are with one guy to dangle, and um, the truth was Jimmy didn't think Herschel was a after working with him. He, he, he told you had to build your ransom. He didn't want to do that, and his his offensive line coach Tony Wise. Would was saying as they'd watch film, why does he keep running into my offensive lineman? <laughs> you know, and, and so they wanted someone who would cut um in their offense. And and Herschel was a power backup, you know, and um so it wasn't a good fit for Herschel, it wasn't a good fit um for Jimmy. And um, but you're right, Herschel around the league was Seen as a you know a top running back. I mean, Minnesota did it. They thought they were one player away. That was the mistake. Cleveland was about to do the deal. They just didn't have the draft picks. They thought they were one player away. And that's um that's always you know a, a, a mistake as Jimmy said that was a real mistake thinking they were one player away.
0: And didn't, um, didn't and make, Walker have like an amazing first game. I, yeah, I mean yeah, I'm reaching yeah. way back here, but he like ran all over somebody a hundred and every yards and caught passes and that really it kind of fueled the Johnson, what the hell are you doing?
1: Yeah, it, for, again, the short. In fact, Jimmy keeps on his phone an article written by a guy who became a pretty good friend of his, Randy Galloway of the Fort Worth Star Telegram, that uh, just uh, he just la- lays out Jimmy in, in the uh, <laughs> as as this is the worst trade in the history of the NFL, basically, and and uh, and he'll pull it up and chuckle, you know, these days. So, but yeah, at the time. <laughs> Their zero and 70s getting ripped um, for, you know, not only how him and Jerry came into Dallas, you know, as these two corn pokes from Arkansas, um, but now he trades away their best player. And, you know, he's doing things a lot differently. Um,
0: so, And that was before the dreaded T word. Tanking.
1: Thank Yeah. Did everyone, yeah. did anyone
0: accuse him back then like you would now? You know, I mean, if, if, I mean, I'm trying to think of someone who would be some, some sort of equivalent, not Mahomes level, but, you know, Justin Herbert or, or something like that, where you traded him away, your best player, or maybe choose someone on defense. But did anyone accuse him of just throwing away the season for the future?
1: Um, You know, I don't know that anybody connected it that way, but as Jim, I've talked to Jimmy about the idea of tanking and, and what he says is, you know, people think we we were, you know, purposely went one in 15 in that year. We bad. We, we, I was trying to win every game. And so, (laughs) and we weren't, we traded one good player who people thought was, was great. I thought he was good. And so, we, you know, people overvalued Herschel and we got a lot for him. I, I had to trade him when when, uh, when when the offers came in. But, you know, his point was we weren't throwing people overboard to try to go one in 15. We were bad. We, we didn't have any talent.
0: <laughs> you're listening. to That was, to
1: the, that was only one in 15.
0: <laughs> you're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is. Dave Hyde. He's a columnist for the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel. He is the co author of Swagger Super Bowls, Brass Balls, and Footballs, a memoir with coach and Hall of Famer Jimmy Johnson. Uh, uh, Jimmy was born in Texas, if I recall, if this is correct. You correct me if any of these things are wrong. He grew up in football country. At a time where football, especially down in the South, was king. Um, He played football at the University of Arkansas. And in reading your book and doing some research, you can actually do. You can replace Kevin Bacon with Jimmy Johnson. He is connected by one or two things to all to these names that are just unbelievable including the fact which i already knew but i thought it was fascinating that he went to high school with Janis Joplin.
1: Yeah, he called Janis Joplin weeds W E E D S. <laughs> I'm not uh, I, I think she was uh, back to nature and he was she would joke with him about being the jock. So they they knew each other you know it didn't like they were best friends or anything but but certainly they knew each other. You know, he grew up in a um hard working but very uh lower middle class family uh lived in a duplex um and, um you know two his, his parents were from arkansas they came down to work and they his dad did in the oil business in in galveston texas on on the on the water there and um um so it was very uh and like you said it was it, he grew up playing football and, and, uh, um, his, his high school team went to the state, uh, I think quarterfinals every year. And, uh, and then the, it came down to where he was being recruited to go to college and his parents told him he could go anywhere they want. He wanted, but if he went anywhere other than Arkansas, they wouldn't come and watch him play. <laughs> and so, uh, he, he, he accepted an offer from Arkansas sight unseen and, and went there and, and, uh, you know, you know like, like a lot of people, uh, some friendships were formed in, in college that, that, uh, you know, came into play later in his life. Let me give it, but, a- but, but, you, but, but Robert, you talk mm-hmm. about, uh, this six degrees of separation. One of his High school assistant on his high school team was Fred Akers, who became a longtime University of Texas, a very successful coach.
0: And Purdue University. And
1: Purdue, right, yeah.
0: Where yeah. my son goes now. I've written down some other names here because I just think it's a, it's almost funny. I'm, I'm assuming that when Coach Johnson is having his Heinekens, I, as I recall, that's his favorite drink. Heineken uh, light, yeah. He must just laugh. He was also connected to Phil Robertson of Duck Dynasty. Yeah,
1: that is right. He, he uh, so he coached his first job. He, he he studied psychology in college. He was planning to take a job in industrial psychology, and after his senior year, of the spring, you know, right when he was about to graduate, he was in the football office, and the coaches from Louisiana Tech were in there. <laughs> Arkansas was the number one defense in the country at the time, and uh, the, the Louisiana Tech coaches there were studying. Uh, the defense and the defensive coordinator called hey Jimmy why don't you draw up our defense they'd probably get more out of it than if I did so Jimmy went up to the chalkboard back then and drew up the defense and explained everything well a couple months later Louisiana Tech's defensive line coach had a heart attack and they called up they remembered his talk called him up hey can you come in he's recovering but can you uh sub in this year and Jimmy said sure well that led to coaching, but at Louisiana tech, there was he, first of all, he went on a recruiting trip cross town and and there was Terry Bradshaw. He recruited, uh, but, but the quarterback at Louisiana tech was, was it Phil Robertson, the duck dynasty guy, <laughs>
0: <laughs> just the idea that he helped recruit Terry Bradshaw. And now they, you know, <laughs> sit next to each other on, or sit on the same set on Fox. is hysterical. He was also on a coaching staff with Barry Switzer, a former rival or excuse me, a future rival. And he was offered a job at Arkansas by future rival Lou Holtz.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, and then, uh, you know, it's interesting as their, their careers crisscrossed, how their, their relationships changed really. He, he, he got along with Switzer. Um, I, they, he's got some stories with Switzer and, and, uh, you know, one one of the stories when Jimmy was at Oklahoma State and Switzer was at Oklahoma home. Of course, Oklahoma national power, and Oklahoma State was the little stepsister that Jimmy. Jimmy had some good years there, but uh nothing to take on Oklahoma nationally. And after one game, uh Oklahoma creamed Oklahoma State. Jimmy went out to midfield to shake Barry's hand, and an assistant came out and uh said to him hey uh barry wanted me to come out here and tell you he went he left the game with five minutes to go to start college <laughs> so <laughs> so <laughs> uh you talk about rubbing it in um but yeah you know you, you know he coached with jackie Cheryl. he um there's a lot of you know when you go back and look at the minds of some of these staffs that these these teams had that he he was with it's it's really telling
0: we should note that when jimmy johnson left oklahoma state to be the coach at the university of miami in 1984 i think was his first year 85 84 85 right. mm-hmm. 84 cuz miami had just won the national championship i think in 83 when they beat nebraska 31 30 in that terrific uh, Turner Gill, Mike Rogier, uh, Heisman Trophy uh, winning team. Uh, the Miami of Florida beat Oklahoma was it three straight years including national championship.
1: Yes and uh that that's what Jimmy talks about, you know, is suddenly there, he had the talent and uh and in fact they 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 played in the the 88 national championship game in the orange bowl and oklahoma was ranked number one 12 and 0 11 and 0 going into the game miami was two and um you know everybody's talking about it's close game what a matchup of great teams and and jimmy spent the whole week telling his team in fact steve walsh says by the end of the thought Oklahoma was a trash team the way that (laughs) the coaches were talking about them how we're going to kill them and beat them with speed and and you know Jimmy did change you know he came in from the time he was a a young coach he had different ideas of speed and and you don't have to be as big if you're quick or fast and and he he, uh, convinced Oklahoma's coaches to start using that Idea and and that, that they had great teams with the you remember the Selman brothers in the early oh, yeah. uh, early seventies and and then um, he took it to Pitt and, and he brought it to Miami that idea of he'd take linebacker a little who are a little too big and slow and make them defensive ends and and all of a sudden they'd be uh, great pass rushers and and that's what he used to, he, he'd talk about how big Oklahoma is we don't care how big they are we're going to be we're going to run around them. And and or out quick him and and um, so that's what he did when he he had the talent to beat Switzer and he did.
0: Johnson was defensive coordinator. uh, Coach Johnson was for the University of Pittsburgh in seventy seven and seventy eight. Did he know Marino back then, or did Marino get there the year after he left? Was he involved in recruiting? Was I mean he had to be aware of him because Marino was one of the top recruits in the country.
1: Yeah, Marino went to Central Catholic in town in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. Big uh, football high school and so he knew of them but um he the year he went to Oklahoma State was the year Marino came to Pitt um who he knew Hugh Green he knew Hugh in fact Hugh Green lived with him very good friends with him and his family and and uh um you know the uh, guys like I'm trying to think who else off that team it was Jackie Sherrill was the head coach um Jimbo
0: they you know, Dave that
1: Ricky ja- Ricky Jackson, I believe, um, did. So he, he knew, but, but Marino came after him.
0: You could put together a hell of a team if you took all the entire history of the University of Pittsburgh. <laughs> Tony Dorsett, Bill yeah, Frehleck, Larry Fitzgerald.
1: One of the stories when I was covering the Dolphins early on, uh, Marino, at, during a practice, was there. he's across the field, and him and his offensive coordinator, Gary Stevens, who coached for years with Jimmy, uh, but this was uh, during Shula, when Shula was the head coach. They're sitting there. All of a sudden, they're raising their voices, and they're arguing. They're pointing fingers. Jimmy calls over Hugh Green, who's sitting there, who's uh, been traded to the Dolphins that year. There, Hugh starts arguing. They're raising their and, – and as a reporter, you're sitting there. What happened? What are they talking about? What are they talking about? And they come off the field. Marino's face is red, and – and uh, was, hey, Dan, what was that about? And he goes, Gary thinks his University of Miami teams could have beat our Pitt teams, and and <laughs> <laughs> so there are so yeah, Pitt of that era of that era had had great teams.
0: Hugh Green was a game changing defensive Tony,
1: Tony seems, yeah. yeah.
0: So at the University of Miami is where Jimmy Johnson, I'm going to say, comes to prominence. Maybe there's no other way to say it. Uh, as a Notre Dame fan, lifelong, you know, I didn't really think much of the University of Miami. They never really kind of became they never came on the radar. Right. We were always waiting to play Michigan or or uh, USC. But the University of Miami or the uh, in Miami of Florida's fortunes changed considerably in the early 80s. They hired Howard Schellenberger from the Shula coaching tree he was part of the a perfect team, if I recall correctly. And Miami started to build something, then they get Jimmy Johnson, and he puts together a run that is shocking in the amount of talent that he has and the success. The only two things that I can really maybe three would be Bobby Bowden who I, didn't he he finish in the top five at Florida State like what fourteen years in a row. Yeah. <laughs>
1: 13 or 14, yeah, yeah. yeah they've been right. You know, Nick, Nick Saban has been on a run lately.
0: He's and, next, and then I was going to say Pete Carroll at USC, but, but oh, right. those Miami teams of the mid to late 80s, you were around then, Miami Herald, as I recall. What were they like, and how did those teams, those successful teams, reflect Jimmy's personality?
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because here's Jimmy, this brash coach with big I mentioned, um, you know, the size and speed that, that uh, you know, the traditional coaches initially glanced at. They didn't want him. To, so he had all these ideas. And now he comes to this you know, this school that, you know, until Howard won the national title in the late 70s, they were thinking of disbanding football at Miami. And so they won the national title, but it was almost like a one-hit wonder. You know, they were – they everything worked magically to win the title. They really weren't a well-formed program just yet. Um, Schnellenberger left. Here comes Jimmy. He wasn't allowed to keep his – to hire his staff. He had to inherit the staff, um, which caused all sorts of problems his first year. But the, then he brings in his own staff. They went – 40 and four, the next, uh, four seasons, um, and, uh, all his ideas of how to, you know, how, how to be, uh, allow player to play free to under his system. You know, he, he didn't care if they danced or talked, they, you know, they, and these are guys come off the streets of Miami. A lot of them are streets of Fort Lauderdale. And all of a sudden, rather than this uh, pastoral game of uh, bula bula of college football <laughs> in in uh, state college or or Lincoln, Nebraska, it was uh, on in you know for the first time really sort of like George, Georgetown and that was sort of mm-hmm. the idea of how Miami played, and it changed you know. You know, Sports Illustrated ran a poll of uh, the most hated teams in the University of Miami's 87 team was number one. His, <laughs> his Dallas team, uh, his Cowboys team were number three. And that tells you not only were they good, but they did things differently than everybody else, too. And um, he was fine with that. Michael Irvin came once into his office uh, when, they, when there was a lot of national criticism of the way they behaved and acted around. And uh, he said, uh, "Coach, you doing all right?" And, and uh, Jimmy said, "You just keep winning, and I'll be fine." So uh, that, that was uh, again. You talk to Jimmy now, and he, those were his favorite days because uh, not only were they were winning, he was in a city he loved. It was a you know, it was all new and fresh, winning like that for him on a big stage.
0: Well, in Miami, in the or in the early to in the mid to let's just say the eighties. You had Miami Vice, it's very popular, Scarface, yeah. you know, which yeah. a movie is, still gets quoted. The Dolphins went to two Super Bowls in the early to mid 80s and still had Marino, even though the late 80s weren't very kind to the Dolphins. So the Hurricanes just fit right in with everything else that was happening there.
1: Yeah, it was all of a sudden it was like uh, neon lights went on in the city and 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 the way the Hurricanes played, the way Jimmy coached. Um, and and Marino throwing the ball all over the field on the Dolphins. It was an electric time round. Let
0: me ask about a couple of games during Coach Johnson's tenure at the U. Uh, First would be the loss to Penn State. I think it's after the 86 season. They lose in the Fiesta Bowl. It was a big deal because, hell, no one had heard of the Fiesta Bowl until then. And yeah. they pull the teams and they go there two independents, So they can go to the Fiesta bowl. There was all this hype. I think Penn state won like 14 to 10. Right. No one thought they were going to win. Joe Paterno represents, you know, everything you're just talking about the, you know, rock, paper and scissors of, of what college football should be about. Ironically, which, uh, which I notice is in the uh, book swagger. There's a mention of Mr. Paterno coach Paterno and his fall. But anyway, Penn State, they had, Penn State was not favored. Miami was, they had Vinny Testaverde and Miami wore the fatigues and were brash and lost. What did that mean to the coach of the Miami Hurricanes, Jimmy Johnson? Did he see that coming? Because I know in your book, he takes the blame for that loss. A hundred percent makes it clear. It's 100% his fault.
1: Yeah, there, you know, Vinny Testaveria is the quarterback, and he threw, I, I believe, five interceptions that game. And Jimmy talks about he didn't manage the game. He didn't manage the quarterback. He didn't manage the game. He, he didn't manage the quarterback from Vinnie won the Heisman. He went the George Awards. He was going to banquets instead of practicing. And then he had a scooter accident, a famous scooter accident at the time, where he skidded up part of his – side of his body and he couldn't practice. And so he goes into this game. He's not prepared to play. And then he starts throwing interceptions. If you look at the stats, Miami it was two to one yardage, two to one first downs. They just dominated on the stat sheet everywhere, but those five interceptions. And he, he Jimmy blames himself for not either changing quarterback, toning down the game plan. So they're running the ball and not. So, um, The upshot for Jimmy is because he never you know, he's he he went into the game thinking like everybody, we're going to kick them. But that's how that was sort of his mentality. Most games where he's telling the players that's how he coached, you know, others would say, uh, be fearful of bulletin board material or teams getting overconfident that that wasn't his way, his way was old, especially if he thought he had the better team you do this this and this we're gonna win
0: okay and, 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 and 80s set 80s that year he said I think in the book you guys write that was his best team ever yeah
1: yeah and that's that's really the I, I don't know if regret but probably it is for him that's the one game he looks back on and I'm sure would love to have back because he loved that not, not only was it his best he loved the team he loved uh, you, you know, the players on that team, the mindset, Jerome Brown on defense, uh, and uh, um, High Smith on offense, and and um, you know, you go down the line of uh, those that really he thought he came out as a coach with those players, and he he wished they they he'd rewarded them or they could sit there and talk about the national championship through the years, but afterwards, uh, it had a big effect on him, in that, he became a lot uh, as, you know, more of a dictator, more of someone who never counted on anything, Uh, you know, you know, more a guy who the next year at Arkansas, they, I think they were up 44 to three and the school presidents in the press box saying, why are they still scoring? And uh, (laughs) Jimmy said, why? Because uh, I'm not going to, I'm never going to let up off the pedal again in a game after what, uh, so it changed him as a coach.
0: The next year he wins the national championship defeating Oklahoma. I think in the orange bowl, was it 20 right. to 14? Yep. How did, how did that validate yep. him in his own mind, the way he drove players, the way he coached, how he chose his profession to finally, you know, beat Oklahoma, beat Barry Switzer and redeem what had happened the previous year.
1: Well, you, you know, you, with Jimmy, it, there's sort of a journey to that game. And and he goes to Oklahoma State and their second, the first year was pretty good. Second year they're in, they're not, you know, they, they took a step backwards and every Thursday night, well, staff to, uh, uh they had a place in every city. Uh, um, and it was a nacho place and it's a Mexican place in most cities. Cause that's what Jimmy liked. And, uh, he could see everybody's downcast, and he said, "You know, guys, stick with me. We're going to win a national title, okay? If you just stick with me, keep to our plan, keep to what we're how we coach." And he, his point was, we didn't win it at Oklahoma State, but we wanted it at Miami. All right. We- and it was when one in their own seven and a one in fifteen. Stick with me. Stick with me. We're going to win the Super Bowl. So I, I think it not only gave him national credibility, but it validated a lot of his ideas and the manner he coached. That okay, this does not only does it work, but it works at the highest level.
0: I I would be amiss since I've had Chris Zorich on the podcast. Not mentioned nineteen eighty eight, the game in South Bend, uh, the U Miami of Florida versus Notre Dame, best college football game I've ever watched. Uh, did you go up there to cover that game?
1: Uh, I, I wasn't. Was I there for that? I wasn't there for that one. I started going. Uh, I believe the next year eighty nine to those games. So I was there for for several of them, but, I, but that, that rivalry was, uh,
0: you can't imagine how intense it was unless you were alive then. And it was just, it was like, it was like a root canal. It was so intense for a short period of time. And then, you know, they, they, it was so intense that Notre Dame and and Miami stopped scheduling each other, which I think is funny. I think it was Notre Dame's decision. Did you see the uh, Catholics versus convicts 30 for 30?
1: Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. What did Uh, you
0: think of that and how they talked about that game? Because it's interesting. The thing that I took away from it was that Coach Johnson said, quote, I think I'm getting this direct. In the end, history shows they were the better team. That was shocking to me that he said that.
1: I'm trying to remember what he says. He also says that if there was replay in like, like now that, 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 that Cleveland, Cleveland Gary Gary. would have, would have <laughs> scored uh, would, or either he would have scored a touchdown or it would have been right at the one inch line of the goal line, uh, if they called him down and it wouldn't have been a, uh, the, the, you know, the, a game changing play wouldn't have been a game changing play. And, and, uh, As he says, I would have won a second national title and Lou Holtz wouldn't have won any. (laughs) So, uh, How did he and Lou Holtz get along? I I mean, they had a weird history together. Yeah, there's some gamesmanship there back with him and Lou Holtz.
0: You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is Dave Hyde. He is co-author with Hall of Famer Jimmy Johnson of the book Swagger, Super Bowls, Brass Balls, and Footballs. A memoir. So let's get Jimmy to Dallas. I was in the army when this happened and it was big news back then, especially since I was at Fort bliss and everybody was a Cowboys fan. How did, how did Jimmy replace a legend like Tom Landry and keep his sanity? And I mean that in the sense that Tom Landry was so revered. He had had two or three bad seasons in a row you know, no one had ever heard of Jerry Jones. He comes in to buy the team. I mean, they really kind of run roughshod through the whole city, but it seems that in your book that that just replacing Landry just didn't seem like it was something that he thought about much. Am I wrong in that? That wasn't like, oh my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to replace this guy?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. One of his Look at his career. So he replaced Schnellenberger coming off a national title at Miami. Schnellenberger was very popular. As you said, he coached with the Dolphins and he he, he uh the media loved him, the fans loved him. Um he never thought anything about replacing Schnellenberger. now. Landry is obvi- obviously bigger on a national scale. Um but he did he Shula, Don Shula with the Miami Dolphins. Um and his way was never to worry about that. You know, he never Looked back, he in, in fact he caused a stir with the dolphins when he came in his first team banquet. He he said, "Who cares about that? You know, I, I'm here for the guys who are here now. I don't care all this talk about the past and and all that. I don't want to hear hear any of that." Um, and that's the you know he he knew how to play the game in Dallas as far um you know Landry was a great legend and great coach and. But honestly, it really he didn't think about that. He was miserable in Dallas the first year, not because he's the shadow cast by Landry, but because they had an awful team.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me ask you the same question, kind of where I did with the Hurricanes. Uh, He's at Dallas. Is it five or six years? They go one in fifteen, then they go seven and nine, and then they make the playoffs, and then they win two Super Bowls. I think that's how it goes. But if he had stayed at Dallas, it it comes through in your book. I mean, are we talking about a Belichick esque run in Dallas for ten to fifteen years?
1: Well, that's what Troy Aikman tells him. He, 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 you know, the players were upset he left. You know, the Aik, Aikman tells him we could have been Tom Brady and Bill Belichick before Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. <laughs> uh, you know, and. Michael Irvin, of course, says they would have won, I forget, five or six Super Bowls. Um, um, the difference is Belichick's cut for that long, long stay, in the long haul. And Jimmy was so, he was up and down. The way he coached, high emotion. You know, he he brought, you know, uh, everybody, the, the phrase in, in, in sports is don't get too high or don't get too mm-hmm. low. No, he got high. And he got low, <laughs> and he took everybody with him, and so so a couple of things happened that we could get into. One was his relationship with Jerry Jones. The other thing was he didn't like the guy he had to be, to, to the lion tamer, the dictator, to, and, and uh, so he wanted out. But yeah, if he had stayed, if if he had stayed another year, I'm, he, he Peter King, in talking with him, uh, the NFL, the really respected NFL writer, um, told him. After Super Bowl 2 they're riding in the limo away, and Jimmy's just not happy. And uh, he, he goes, are you thinking of leaving? And he goes, I don't know, Peter. He goes, if you stay one more, that's three Super Bowls, you're in the Hall of Fame. And he, I, I, it didn't mean anything to him at the moment. Later in life, you know, when he's removed and everything, being in the Hall of Fame meant a lot to him. But at the time, that's just like he didn't think of who he was replacing. He didn't think of... Things like, oh, if I stay one more year, I'll be in the Hall of Fame.
0: Would you say that Jimmy Johnson, you know, here in Indiana, we're familiar with uh, coaching dictators. Would you say that Jimmy Johnson, along with Bill Belichick, are kind of the last of the coaching dictators that were so prevalent in the NFL in the 60s and 70s and 80s?
1: I would, but Jimmy just does it a different way than like a Bobby Knight or a... Uh, although he says, uh, when when he's asked, would your ways work in today's NFL? And he says they are. And uh, mm-hmm. what do you mean they are? He goes, well, his coach is exactly like I would accept the public presence. You know, Jimmy talked through the press. He, uh, he, he talked in headlines. And Belichick, obviously, is more... Um, <laughs> reserve shall we say in and publicly um but as far as how to manage a team how to you know just be ruthless cut guys uh you know Jimmy cut guys who out of meetings uh, cut guys who fumbled uh um he he he, could, he was ruthless as a coach and, and in that way yeah that's not something you, you you really see in today's NFL um now to to go along with that he also again let players be themselves he didn't have no problem with uh them as long as they played within his rules you know they could play freely you know and and talk and and dance and and uh um do a lot of things that other coaches wouldn't allow
0: it seems to me of all of jimmy's players and i'm no. going to ask you about two or three of them but, but of all of them Michael Irvin seems to be the prototypical Jimmy Johnson football player.
1: Yeah, from the standpoint that, uh, uh, first of all, highly talented, and second of all, brash, (laughs) he he played with an attitude um, that you could see. And yet there was also the, the things that people never saw or rarely did was appreciate how hard he worked. You know, and and I, I remember being at the University of Miami, and a guy's being disciplined. Uh, a Miami player is being disciplined for something. He's having to run laps after practice, and there's Michael Irvin running with him, and not just be not just to be a good teammate. And um, Irvin would wear, you know, he would wear people out. But I mean, to run more sprints, um, <laughs> I, I got to know Michael a little. He was inducted in the Broward Hall of Fame down because he's from Fort Lauderdale. And, and before that, I went with him to his neighborhood. And as we're walking in the neighborhood uh, by his house, he's, he's bending down, you know, wiping gravel away from the street, looking for something. And I said, what are you looking for? And he goes, I, used, I painted marks on the road here when I was a kid. And I was just seeing if they were still there. And he'd paint... 10 yard marks then 50 come from high school practice and run sprints. And then he'd, uh, you know, up and down the street, then he'd run three miles. So he was the perfect player for Jimmy. In that, you know, not only, in, in fact, Jimmy, when he got to Dallas, he would ask when they're looking at a player to draft, he'd ask uh, his draft. Is he a Miami guy? Meaning does he play with an attitude? Does he you know, not just high talent, but mm-hmm. but uh, coachable, but with a big attitude. Dude, those
0: are the guys yeah. we're talking with. Journalist and author and Winston Churchill aficionado, wow. Dave Hyde. Just judging by the books that are behind you, <laughs> as we <laughs> conduct this interview. Yeah, uh, one of the best parts of your book, to me, really was the dissection. And I'd like to, t- for you to talk about for a few minutes of the relationship between Jimmy Johnson and Jerry Jones, to me, I mean, if you had to parse out the, uh, uh, credit for the Cowboys dynasty in the, in the early to mid nineties, it would be 99% Jimmy 1% Jerry, but I'm obviously biased, but it just seemed like Jerry Jones sh- ruined a good thing like what are you doing you've got this amazing team this wonderful coach and you're upset because you're not getting enough credit
1: yeah you know in fact jerry what a couple years ago before a season basically broke down in tears saying yeah i really screwed it up didn't i you know and and so um they had a weird relationship. In fact, the first time, it sort of leads off the chapter with Jerry in the book where um, Jimmy says, uh, you know, a lot of people say they don't understand my relationship with Jerry.
0: And I appreciate that because I don't understand it either. You know, so (laughs) they've been friends for uh, decades before he took over the Cowboys. They knew each other. They played football together. Yeah. You know, know,
1: that got a little overblown in the in the when they went together to Dallas. Oh, these college, these college roommates, um, best buddies and all that. Well, I mean, Jim, Jerry played. they, They were roommates Friday night before games because they were alphabetically. Beside each other, yeah. and then the Arkansas coaches you know, every Friday night road game. You'd you'd done a room with this guy, so yeah, they knew each other, they liked each other, but Jerry was older. Uh, he played offense or deep, yeah, he played offense, and Jimmy was uh, younger and played defense. So while they knew each other and they liked each other, they weren't best friends or anything mm-hmm. like that. So, but they did keep tabs on each other, and every few years at a reunion or whatever would, uh, would talk and, and they followed each other's career and, and she, you know, obviously crushed it in, the in, in making money and Jimmy, you know, became the coach he did. And so, so when Jerry went to buy the team, he wanted Jimmy to be his coach and Jimmy was, uh, you know, had one, in college, at that point, and and he 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 couldn't turn down the lure and um, challenge of going to the pros. So, um, and and for the, as bad as the Cowboys were, on the field when J- when, Jimmy took him over that bad in the business department too when Jerry took him over. So over the first couple of years, Jerry spent all his time turning around the the business of the Cowboys, and Jimmy spent all his time turning around the the football team well about year three when they started to win a little by then jerry had turned a a team that was losing a million dollars a month into one that was making a lot of money and yet as he told jimmy um i can make a five million dollar deal and nobody cares but you can trade for a third a third uh guard and everybody's whoa and he said <laughs> as jimmy tells it he then said the line that that he jimmy knew was going to cause problems he said i want some of that fun you know yes. and and when when they when they originally did the deal jimmy had all control of football um um in fact we put it in the in the book the contract yeah. um spelling out jimmy cuz cuz um and but jerry kept wanting to change the wording in the contract that he would you know and, and jimmy didn't think he really wanted to make trades or um you know talk about who, who should play or game plans he just won some of that fun he wanted for people to look at him and say oh yeah good job jerry yeah you're uh, the
0: mastermind you you know yeah, that yeah. trade well i remember wasn't it on was it on monday night football that jimmy johnson jokingly referred to jerry jones as michael jackson <laughs> you remember that say-
1: no, I don't remember. Uh, but I, I Jones had had like a line, face but...
0: peel. Jones had had like a face peel or something and Johnson, <laughs> coach Johnson said, you know, what's going on down there in Dallas with Michael Jackson, I mean Jerry Jones. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: funny. Jimmy, Jimmy will say we see each other, we hug, we laugh, we chuckle, and then I'll read something in the line or I'll say something and and uh um they have an odd relationship.
0: But the killer quote that really comes through the book and you could almost in the words that coach johnson uses in the book that it went beyond just ribbing or arguing or or fussing about who gets credit is when jerry jones said there are 500 coaches who could have won the super bowl with the Dallas Cowboys yeah, that sense was, that was beyond the pale to to Jimmy Johnson. Like, do you understand how much work I've put into you know creating this? What do you mean, any one of five hundred coaches?
1: Yeah, Jimmy had built that football program to the point that any of five hundred coaches, and and it was proven when he brought Barry Switzer out <laughs> of <laughs> and and they they you know they they won a Super Bowl his second year there. So, um, but he didn't appreciate what it took to keep a team on top you know jerry didn't he didn't appreciate the the constant need to bring in more talent and 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 older talent and and all that that went with it so um Jimmy got off a train that was going 100 miles per hour and Barry Switcher got on and it was he thought he was driving it going 100 miles an hour and, <laughs> and it <was> just slowly <laughs> coasting to a, to a stop. and, and, and in fact, uh, in the book, it was uh, the Dallas Cowboys, after you know the, Jimmy's talent left, they didn't win a, they didn't go to the playoffs or win a playoff game for 12 years. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, that was shown to a couple people when a couple people in the Dallas who were part of that Dallas organization, oh, that's not true. We did, but then they looked it up and they, oh my God, we didn't win for 12 years. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was a, you know, I, Hey, Jerry's have, doing what he wants to do. He's running the team. you know, he's, he's saying he's running the team. He's and, and you, you can't discount what he's nice, but. Um, they haven't won again. They haven't come close really.
0: And he gets to do the interviews and the press conferences yeah. and be quoted in, you know, 20 point, uh, font it's and a, that sort it's of thing. It's an odd
1: scene. The Dallas Cowboys are an odd scene in that after the game, some media goes to the head coach, but the rest of the, a bigger herd of media has to watch Jerry Jones because you never know what he's going to say. That's how, that's how he's having the fun. He wanted he owns the team. He gets. That's just
0: right. I have, I have, we have a few minutes left with uh, sports columnist Dave Hyde. Uh, I've purposely truncated the uh, amount of time we get to talk about Jimmy Johnson's tenure as the coach of my Miami Dolphins. (laughs) I I remember uh, when he was hired that, you know, like everyone else, I thought, oh my God, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. And Huizenga, you know, we all thought it's been waiting for. And we love Shula, but, you know, he's been here since 1970, and we need someone else. And I, I couldn't have been more shocked or disappointed about how his – he was there, I think, four years for the Dolphins, how that turned out. How did you describe his tenure with the Dolphins, and could it just be summed up in uh, in the words of, just be too late. He got there too late for Marino.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's uh when he took the job, he knew it had to be a, you know, the, they had a lot of, uh, you know, they had some good talent, but they were also way over the salary cap. And
0: Eric and, Green, um, my God. Yeah. Right. Instead of and Bryce so Paup.
1: Jimmy had to dump players overboard to get into the cap he, and he wanted to do it the way you know building with young players through the draft but he knew he had to do it really quick because his first practice he he uh walks out there and has jog around the field and marino comes to him and says uh well i can jog around the field but then i can't practice because my niece and jimmy thought oh boy you know this it's a, it's a it, it, you know it it's he's in worse shape than I than Jimmy expected, I think. Um, and so um, you know, it just comes to the he couldn't build it up quickly enough. You know, he built the defense, um, yeah. drafted two Zach Thomas, I'm sure, is gonna make the Hall of Fame this year, the Hall of Famers off that team, two Pro Bowl cornerbacks. He just couldn't get that off the the talent quickly enough on the
0: offense. And, and you it know, just that, that, killed him that T.O. Green's destroyed his knee. Everyone says he's a bust. Well, he's not a bust if he blows his knee out, I think, in the very first practice or the very first day, first-round draft pick. Uh, Do you get the sense that as you you covered it, and I remember reading about it, uh, the Marino-Johnson relationship, it certainly didn't, you know... the Johnson Aikman relationship was cold and then got warm. And now, you know, now it's the, the pictures, the the video of Aikman in tears as Jimmy Johnson is, you know, uh, told he's in the hall of fame is just beautiful. But I've read interviews with Marino. And then it's in the book where Marino's like, look, we got along fine. Like we wanted to win. We wanted to do these things. You know, did we disagree a little bit about game strategy? Sure. But as far as getting along and, and seeing the big picture and wanting to do what it takes to win, Everything was fine. I mean, that's basically what Dan Marino says in his, you know, football life special from the NFL. Is that revisionist history on the part of of Dan Marino or what was it like then? Because I was at the Dolphins game in Indianapolis in 99 that Marino wins here where he throws the pass to Gadsden and then he throws the fade to Gadsden to win 34-31. I was there and then you read about it afterward that that game was played in the middle of all this Johnson-Marino drama. Was there was that- overhyped, or was it real, or both? I, I
1: think it was probably a little of both. I, I think some, I don't know, revisionist history, but everybody's trying to um, be nice now. Um, <laughs> you, you remember, they, they they went to the playoffs three out of Jimmy's four years. They won two playoff games. But as Jimmy says, um, he knew after this first or second year in that, that they weren't going to win the sport. And so his idea, instead of trying to win it all, they'd win as many games as they could. And, you know, he, he felt like the need to dance. Physical talent was fading. And, and the, his last year, remember, he got hurt.
0: His shoulder sure mm-hmm. and
1: yeah and 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 Damon Hewitt came in and they won 7 straight games or no they, I think they went 5 and 1 something like that That's um Marino came in back at Dallas yeah Thanksgiving day and just an awful game he wasn't healthy and and so I look it, it, these were two fierce competitors and they weren't succeeding at the level they wanted, and so I, I think there were some strained relationships there. That maybe time has uh, has uh, you know
0: healed healed some of the wounds. When when Coach Johnson says, as he says in your book, "I wish I had gotten to coach Dan Marino earlier," you think that's a, a sincere sentiment or more of the "let's get along."
1: I think that definitely sincere in
0: that you he looked at Marino in
1: the eighties and the you know the early nineties and and uh, you know one of the shaves of Marino's careers from eighty six to ninety they never they went to I think it's four or five straight years they they he had no talent him. they were a five hundred nah, team
0: nah. and and um, the worst first round draft picks in the history of the NFL multiple years in a row. Yeah, Kumaro, Boza, yeah. Hampton, Ship. Don't I Sammy mean, Smith. Sammy Smith. <laughs> we,
1: we, we can we can keep we can really depress you as a Dolphin fan by going through that list. But um but no one doubted the talent of Marino. And you talk to his teammates. You talk to guys who played against him. You talk to um, they knew what a talent Marino was. So. Absolutely, I'm sure Jimmy would have loved to coach, and he had the right attitude of, you know, that cocky attitude that Marino loved, that Jimmy loved to coach too.
0: Last question I want to ask you before we get to the five questions we ask all of our guests is, you know, Jimmy Johnson became a member of the media per se in his work at Fox, Um, and then he works with you, a member of the media. You've written, you know, every so often in your columns at the in the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel, your columns are basically with Jimmy Johnson. It's you two having a conversation and you print the, you know, the results of that conversation. How did Jimmy get along with the press and how did the press uh, get along with Jimmy? Cause you know, both can be hard to tame.
1: Yeah. Th- Jimmy, look here, here's Jimmy's worldview. When he's winning, everything's great. <laughs> okay. He, he, he's the happiest guy and he's great to Work with they're losing, or they're not getting to the standards he want. He was a lot harder to work with, but I will say, even even in Dallas, he was great. When I first met him, at the University of Miami, they were winning. He was he, he's his big personality, a lot of fun. I mean, there were moments, of course, because things were controversial, um, but he 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 didn't shy away from anything. Then you go to Dallas and you talk to the writers about they love covering him. Even we, he's news, even, you know, you know, that. Yeah. Yeah. He did things like Peter King went with him on a draft scouting trip. You know, he allowed the media to inside to see his world. You know, there were things you could, you, you knew not to say, uh, because he, he, he didn't want you giving away his state secrets of what he's thinking, mm-hmm. but, um, he let you in to see how things really operated. And, and from, you know, our st- side if, if you get to, if you get led in like that that you get okay so uh, things were rough at miami because you know we've gone through some of it that they, they while they again made the playoffs they won two playoff games in four years um they they you know that and that's that's more than they've won in the last 20 Quarter century almost since he left, which is you know embarrassing to the franchise. But the point is, they didn't succeed to the level he wanted, and so there were rough moments. But you know, what what you love to cover it from my side is excellence. And you always knew Jimmy was an excellent coach, even if the results weren't always. Uh, you know, he was just winning a playoff game instead of the Super Bowl. Um, and and he he was fun to cover.
0: We've reached the point on the leaders and legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests, Dave Hyde. Are you ready? I'm, I'm all set. I'm, I'm pumped for this. <laughs> what was your first job?
1: My first job. You mean that not, not in journalism, but uh, in my first job, um, I, I worked for a tow truck company for five years and uh while i was starting in high school and i initially i would with a acetylene torch i would they had a junkyard and i would cut engines out of junk cars and then put them on a flatbed truck the the uh the, the frame of the carcass of the, the car and i'd take it to a shredder and uh then i then i tow cars for a while and uh so you see why i why i appreciated uh <laughs> sitting in press box and, and eating hot dogs
0: <laughs> number two what was your first concert
1: first concert was the beach boys i was 15 i grew up in columbus ohio and the, the beach boys played in saint john arena which was ohio the state's basketball arena at the time and uh and uh went and saw the Beach Boys, and I, I just remember all these people from the Midwest pretending that they w- were on surfing safaris and all this <laughs> stuff that was so foreign to me that uh <laughs> it was a lot of fun.
0: Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend?
1: Well, besides Swagger, of course. Or uh, Still
0: Perfect. Yeah. The- or 1968.
1: Uh, Let <laughs> throw that in, too. Um, what what book to, I would suggest, well, the best biog- histor- historical biography I've read is Peter the Great. Um,
0: oh, by Massey.
1: Yeah, yeah, Robert Massey. It's a tremendous story uh, and gr- lays out this you know, the East against, and the West and, and open thinking and change generations and worlds. And, uh, uh, but if you're, I was a history major, so the, um, there's a lot of, you know, Churchill, I, the first two, um, biographies, is it up here?
0: The Manchester volumes?
1: Yeah. The Manchester volumes were tremendous. And, and, uh, I I read them and I, and then I was waiting for the third one. And I, he he said he didn't have the energy to go on with that. So, um, you know, I love to read history books and, and so, uh, I'd throw those two out there.
0: Well, this next question is right up your alley. If you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Yeah. My, my neighbor, um, he, he
1: co-founded the Miami Heart Institute here and he, he died uh, well he died about 25 years ago. Um, but he was responsible as a doctor for getting the, the wounded off Omaha Beach and oh and, 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 and the stories he has, you know, I would love to I, I, you know would I really want to see that? I don't know. But but, uh, you, know, you, you know, some of the things he went through and the stories he tells, it would have been I don't know that I want to be in that battle to witness it. But yeah. but uh, but uh, the
0: moment uh, did you watch Saving Private Ryan with him? Yeah,
1: right. The, that's why You know, that what comes to mind when you think of you you're, you're really wouldn't want to be in because it's such a. Um, gut-wrenching and, and bloody affair. Um, so I'm sure there's something, uh, you know, else that would come to mind. But that's the, when you said it, that's the first thing that came to mind.
0: Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record just to chat, whom would you choose?
1: First stop, Bill Murray. Bill Murray.
0: <laughs> well, he has a Cinderella yeah. story. I know it would be fun.
1: <laughs> it's a it's a <laughs> groundhog day um you know some uh, just because i you know i'd lo- i'd love to sit there uh, sit at a bar and all of a sudden i look over there'd be B- bill Murray, and and uh um I'd like to laugh with him
0: i'm sh- and I'm sure that's exactly what would happen you have been listening to leaders and legends a podcast presented by veteran strategies an indiana- based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today has been Dave Hyde. He is the co-author, along with coach and Hall of Famer Jimmy Johnson, of the new book, Swagger, Super Bowls, Brass Balls, and Footballs, a Memoir. We'll be sure to put a link on our social media channels for you to buy the book. Dave, as a Miami Dolphins fan since 1972, it's an honor to talk to you. Thank you so much. I love your columns. Like, like I said, I subscribe to the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel so I can read your columns during football season and beyond. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Your book was wonderful. It's a great read.
1: Robert, thanks for it was a lot of fun. And I, I appreciate you uh, being all these years reading my comments. A lot of fun to talk to you.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at